music. It's always been central to celebrating the coming of Christ into the world. That's why on this special edition of The Land and the Book, we're going to be focusing on Hosanna and Excelsis. You'll experience the hymns of the season like never before. And then we'll answer a whole bunch of fascinating Bible questions. Plus, Charlie Dyer's devotional brings us three prophecies of Christmas. That's all ahead. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Middle East expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, Israel continues to be on our hearts and minds, many of us struggling with questions of what to think and feel. But in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He's faithful to his chosen people. That's right, John. And as this year draws to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself, or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Time now to swing our focus toward current events from the Middle East. The war in Gaza, now in its 11th week. What's the latest from the front lines? Well, Israel's pushing into the heart of northern Gaza and into the key cities in the south like Khan Yunus. Uh, As the fighting intensifies in the tunnels, Israeli casualties are starting to mount. Defense officials believe Israel needs at least another two to three weeks to complete its operation in Khan Yunus and another month or more to wrap up the first stage of this war in Gaza. Uh, They're reluctant to set a specific timetable since it'll depend on the level of resistance put up by Hamas and on whether they're able to secure the release of all hostages still being held. In a rather bizarre statement, Palestinian Authority President Abbas has now claimed that the massacre of the 350 Israelis at the music festival on October 7 was caused by Israeli helicopters. This in spite of the hundreds of concert goers who survived the massacre and identified Hamas fighters as the one doing the killing, and in spite of Hamas's own body cam camera footage documenting the attack. Apparently, Israel has also begun pumping seawater into the tunnels in Gaza, It could take weeks to disable all the tunnels, but it sounds like that process has now begun. President Biden called on Israel to stop indiscriminate bombing to cause less harm to Palestinian civilians, and certainly this is the main point of contention between many countries in Israel right now. The most recent estimate is that about 18,000 in Gaza have died during the war. And while that might sound excessive, a former commander of British forces in Afghanistan says the number needs to be put into perspective. Of the 18,000 deaths, uh, the best estimate is that about 7,000 are Hamas fighters who've been killed. The ratio of civilian deaths to armed combatants is then about one and a half to one. That is a one and a half civilians for every one fighter who's been killed. Now, that's a tragic number, but it's also a reality of war. Uh, The UN estimates that civilian to combatant death ratios in conflicts since World War II on average is nine to one. So the ratio in the current Gaza war compares very favorably, and as this former commander noted, Israel has managed to achieve this low ratio despite Hamas embedding in and underneath civilian population centers and using civilians as human shields. Now, all civilian casualties are tragic, 
But the world needs to understand that Israel is trying to eradicate a vicious and unprincipled enemy while still trying to limit civilian casualties. And the ratio of civilian to combatant deaths suggests they're not indiscriminately bombing. They're doing a very careful job or as careful a job as they can right now. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Well, Henry Kissinger recently died at the age of 101. In what turned out to be his final interview, he gave a rather startling analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian situation along with his proposed solution. Charlie, what did he see as the most realistic way forward? Yeah, I found this fascinating. Kissinger gave the interview after the war between Israel and Hamas had already started. Perhaps his most dramatic statement came when he was asked uh, how he would react were he in Netanyahu's shoes. And while he said he's in favor of a peaceful outcome, he then added, I don't see a peaceful outcome with Hamas involved in the conflict. I would favor negotiations between the Arab world and Israel. I do not see, especially after these events, that direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians are very helpful. Uh, The writer then followed up with another question. Well, can there ever be lasting peace in the Middle East without a two-state solution? And Kissinger's reply was equally dramatic. He said, a formal peace doesn't guarantee a lasting peace. The difficulty of the two-state solution was shown by the experience of Hamas. And then he said, I believe the West Bank should be put under Jordanian control rather than aim for a two-state solution, which leaves one of the two territories, and by that he meant Gaza, determined to overthrow Israel. Now, if that sounds discouraging, it is. But in one sense, he's right. Gaza was a test case for a two-state solution, and it failed miserably. And Abbas continues to say he wants Hamas to be part of his government in a future Palestinian state. As Kissinger admitted, there is no easy answer, and that includes the proposal for a two-state solution. Well, we move from the current conflict in the Middle East to battles long ago. Archaeologists have discovered what they believe to be the earliest example of high-tech, mass-produced weapons for use in war. What did they uncover, and when were they used? Yeah, and by long ago, we are definitely referring to the far distant past, the Chalcolithic period, which predates the Bronze Age. Archaeologists excavated two sites in Israel from that period. One is in Lower Galilee, and the other is in the northern Sharon Plain, just south of Mount Carmel. At both sites, they found hundreds of slingshot stones. The stones were nearly identical in shape and size and composition, suggesting they were mass-produced in an organized fashion. Uh, The stones were smoothed and somewhat oblong in shape, which gave them solid aerodynamic characteristics. As the archaeologists describe it, the discovery suggests the community engaged in organized preparation for battle and had a stockpile of ammunition. Yet when we think of slings and stones, we think of David fighting Goliath. But while David the shepherd, he was just used to picking up smooth stones he could find and use, long before his time, at least two cities had experimented with shaping stones to make them more accurate and more deadly. The fact that so many stones were together at the two sites suggests that they were never used in battle. They had the stockpile that never was put to use. So what happened to cause the people to abandon all their hard work? That's still a mystery. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has led more than 100 tour groups to Israel. He's a respected Old Testament scholar and a guy who has been a lifelong student of the Middle East. Well, Charlie, as awful as war is, it can also produce breakthrough technology that can ultimately help save lives. Tell us about a recent innovation in amazing Israel that has uh, been put to use on the front lines. Yeah, this life-saving innovation 
It's a thermal patch developed by Haifa's Rambam Healthcare Campus. Uh, The patch is designed to counteract hypothermia, a rapid drop in body temperature caused by extensive bleeding and exposure to cold. Uh, The patch quickly heats up to exactly 107 degrees. It's placed on the injured skin and then retains that heat for up to eight hours. What it's designed to do is to rewarm the body and keep it from dropping below 95 degrees, which is when various systems in the body stop functioning properly. One real danger of hypothermia is that it impairs blood clotting, so wounds keep bleeding. The patch is now being tested on soldiers in the field, and hopefully it'll soon find its way into ambulances and emergency response teams in our country as well. This could be a real game changer. Well, the war has crowded out much of the other news from the Middle East, including Egypt's presidential election, which took place this past week. What was the outcome? Yeah, no surprise here, though the final election results won't be announced until Monday. It appears that Abdel Fattah el-Sisi has won re-election to another six-year term as president, keeping him in power until 2030. The three-day vote began this past Sunday, with el-Sisi facing three other lesser-known candidates. A separate runoff is scheduled for January 8 to 10 if no candidate secures more than 50% of the vote, but el-Sisi is expected to pass that threshold. The biggest concern was the size of voter turnout, with a large turnout providing more legitimacy for the results. Based on the preliminary numbers, it looks like a high percentage of eligible voters went to the polls. Now, uh, the two main problems that they're facing in Egypt is the economy and the war in Gaza. And uh, many people feel that Sisi is the best to handle this. Uh, Certainly, he has the experience with the economy. And as a military man, he has the experience in trying to keep uh, refugees from flooding over into Egypt from Gaza. Now, there were many concerns, and another concern was also bad weather in Egypt uh, during those three days. But in the end, Egypt saw solid voter turnout with almost no voting problems. And as I said, the unofficial results show El-Sisi easily winning another term in office, uh, but we'll get the final results on Monday. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Charlie, we've got people who listen to us exclusively on a radio station. Good old-fashioned radio. Nothing wrong with that. And there are others who are in no way near a radio station of any kind that would air the land in the book. They use our podcast. For somebody who isn't familiar, what is our podcast and how do they get it? Well, a podcast is taking our program and putting it online so that they can pick it up anytime. Uh, Now, they can pick that up on our Land in the Book uh, website, and it'll take them to their podcast. Or if they have a program on their phone, on their smartphone, that will also take them to podcasts, they can sign up for the Land in the Book there and and get it. The best news in all this is that they can listen to our program anytime at their convenience. That website to find the podcast is thelandandthebook.org. When you're there at the website, check out information about today's guest, past guests, future programs, and more. It's all there at thelandandthebook.org. Looking forward to our conversation about Hosanna and Excelsis next on The Land and the Book. Music, it's at the very heart of how we celebrate the coming of the Messiah into the world. But what if we could look at the hymns and carols of the season in a fresh new light? What if we could let them speak to us in ways that let us see our Messiah in a new light? We're about to do just that. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we begin our chorus of Hosanna and Excelsis, let's ponder this idea about sharing our Jewish Messiah with our Jewish friends. 
Anti-Semitism, it's a growing problem, but is it a fit subject for you and your Jewish friend for conversation? Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries, what say you? Well, I would say it's an opportunity to say, what do you think is the cause of anti-Semitism? And you could say, from my perspective, the cause of anti-Semitism is the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three things despise God and are at work against God. God has chosen the Jewish people for a purpose and for a reason. And they ultimately will be the ones that will lead the world to righteousness and to the Messiah and to be a nation where God will bring all the nations of the world to celebrate his appointed times. And so anti-Semitism is a movement by the devil organizing uh, the world system as well as the fleshly nature of man to oppose God's will for the world. His will will be done, but the enemy is using the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I might add that sometimes we as Christians, because we are fleshly, we become unwitting tools of the enemy. Words of caution and some good advice from Roy Schwartz with Chosen People Ministries. Thanks. David and Barbara Lehman have served many churches and ministries in music. They also wrote and published Hosanna, Loud Hosannas, a student hymnal widely used in churches, Christian schools, and homes. Together they've created the Moody Publishers devotional Hosanna and Excelsis, hymns and devotionals for the Christmas season. It's great to have you guys on today. Thank you for having us. Well, you know, going into this project, you knew there were already dozens of Christmas devotionals out there, and some of them very tied to Christmas carols. So, David, what makes this book different, would you say? Well, first of all, all of the devotional comes from the text of the carols that are included in the book, and there's 43 of them that uh, we give you the melody and uh, text of all the stanzas on, say, the right-hand page of the book, and then on the left-hand page, we give a brief but comprehensive description of the uh, author of the text, of the composer of the tune, and then a third section, which is, as you sing this hymn, and then it goes on to describe what should be occurring in your heart as you're singing this hymn, what it means and how you apply it to yourself. So I don't know of any books that are on the market that do that many songs with this brief, you can do it in 15 minutes as a devotional. So Barbara, you know, going into this project, you too knew that there were dozens of Christmas devotionals out there. What made you say, aha, this is something we've got to do together, me and David? Well, first of all, I was a teacher when I was doing this in a Christian school, and we wrote it for our students. So I approached it pretty much from that aspect. And I find that in this book, and what I have found myself, is that, number one, it teaches all the carols, the traditional ones, plus many, many more. But it's so much more than that. It's some of the greatest Christian poetry that's ever been written. And I look at it a lot as a poetry book. And as people go through and you experience all the different aspects of Christmas, but from different centuries and people who lived at different times and places and who were experiencing different things. And it's such a broadening thing in the sense. So in your Christian devotional, you are going Christmas devotional, you're going back and you're seeing what someone, a Victorian poet would say about it. You're seeing what the third century, fourth century liturgy of St. James was like. So it just, it's such a broadening experience and all beautiful, beautiful words. The really beautiful words in this book 
aren't what we wrote. It's the carols themselves and how they're expressed. Today on The Land and the Book, we're inviting you to enrich your Christmas with the sounds of the season. Our conversation is with David and Barbara Lehman, who created the Moody Publishers devotional, Hosanna and Excelsis. Well, you know, there are so many great hymns and songs. I have to ask, what was your process for saying, okay, this one makes it into the book, this one, probably not. What, uh, what was that process like? Well, first of all, as Barb said, we started by using the traditional and familiar songs to probably 80, 90 percent of churchgoers and Christians that they've either sung at church or heard them and know them some. I would say that about 25 percent of them may be completely new to others, but we felt they were important for people to learn because of the depth of the text because of the singability of the tune and the interest of the tune, and because they really are songs that should be in every Christian's repertoire of Christmas hymns. That was our desire, that this would be 43 of the best songs you could ever want to sing at Christmas. Well, now, you know, of course, along the way, everybody's definition of best is different, and, you know, you guys are husband and wife— Did you ever have any conflicts over this? How did you resolve uh, when you came to a point, maybe one of you said, I think this one should make it in, and and the other said, maybe not. I mean, you got to come out of this thing still married, you know. (laughs) Well, it's easy. I just always gave in. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I don't remember having a conflict like that. We have discovered through the years that we are so similar in our tastes and in, in what we like, and actually... It was easy. I was teaching full-time at the time, and Dave was doing a lot of the choosing, and he came up with some wonderful things I never would have found. The hands that first held Mary's child comes to mind. I'd never heard of that carol. So even as I go through this hymnal, there there are ones that I'm still learning that I am enjoying knowing. All right, so a no-drama-mama kind of situation here in the writing of this book. I would say uh, relatively none, (laughs) maybe uh, about how we said things, but— we submit to one another Yeah, that's great. in the fear of the Lord. Amen. I like that model. David and Barbara Lehman are with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, really enjoying their Moody Publishers devotional, Hosanna and Excelsis. Got to ask, what's your favorite musical piece and why? We need you both to weigh in on this. What's your favorite Christmas carol in the book and why? Well, I have a lot of favorites. But I think one that stands out to me as you ask that question that comes to mind is Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor, which was written by the head of the China Inland Mission at the time, Frank Houghton. And during the time of his tenure, the Civil War broke out in China between the Red Army and the Chinese, and many missionaries were taken captive. One couple in particular was kidnapped and then murdered, which shook the whole mission to its core. And Frank Houghton decided that in spite of much danger to himself, he wanted to travel to China and visit the missionaries that were left there to encourage them. And in traveling over the Sichuan Mountains of China, the verse came to him from 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And out of that experience came the the carol, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor, thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. I think that's just such beautiful, beautiful poetry, and as it goes on. So I would say that I think teaching the children that one was one of my, my most favorite experiences. 
Yeah, Barbara, listening to you quote that, all for love's sake became poor. That is profound. All right, we need to let uh, David weigh in on this. His favorite Christmas carol in the book and why? You know, the very last carol in the book is called In the Bleak Midwinter. Mm. Now, when you first look at that, you might think, well, that's talking about the weather and the time of the season. But most people know that Jesus was probably not born in the wintertime when the sheep were in the pasture with the shepherds. Uh, most likely it was spring. But Christine Rossetti wrote this in the 1850s, perhaps. And I believe she was talking about the world and what was going on. It was the bleak midwinter of the world for most people. And uh, she uses this line, uh, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow in the bleak midwinter long ago. Then it goes on to talk about what God did in bringing Jesus to the world. And you know, right now, I think we're in a bleak midwinter as yes. we look at the news and, and you wonder, is this a precursor to the end times or to mm -hmm. another world war? What is it? Uh, all I know is that is not what matters. What matters is that Jesus came for whatever the winter is of our lives at all time. Maybe your winter is your health or a loss of a loved one or something. Jesus is there as the wonderful God Messiah to help us and get us through these winter times. Wow, that is beautiful encouragement. Thank you, David. Barbara, you, uh, you point out an interesting detail with regard to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, today, of course, so many songs are written lyrically and musically by the same group of folks, but it hasn't always been that way. And uh, give us a little background on Hark the Herald Angels Sing and an interesting irony there. Yes, some consider it to be the most great carol, theologically speaking, words written by Charles Wesley. The music, however, was not written by him. It was, it's taken from a tune by Felix Mendelssohn. Neither of the men who wrote the text or the words of this carol ever heard them put together as we know them. They were written in different countries, different centuries. And I think I find that fascinating. That's true of so many of the carols. And I think that's why it's interesting as you go through this and study it to look at the birth dates of each of the men, because you'll notice that they're, they're either living in the same time or very, very different times in different countries. It has uh, quality that has stood the test of time, not only that we're singing it 200 years after they were, it was written, but it's a favorite. I mean, everybody knows. I mean, if you uh, watch Christmas movies on TV, you know, a lot of time in the background, there's a caroler singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What is it about that hymn that causes all the world to know it and sing it? They don't believe it, but there's something about its fascination, both musically and lyrically, that draws people to it. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. With us today are David and Barbara Lehman. Together they've created the unique Moody Publishers devotional, Hosanna in Excelsis. A link to that book is at our website, thelandandthebook.org. You know, when you guys uh, immerse yourself as long as you did in a project like this, there is inevitably, I think, a, a sort of cumulative effect, a sort of karate chop to your soul when all of these lyrics combine, all of these melodies, what's the big takeaway that has hit you both with regard to this book? I think it's uh, that we don't give Christmas as much energy and time and thought as it deserves. 
when we see this laid out, and we believe it's a great book to do one carol, one study per day over 43 days, if you can, because to read it all in a sitting or two or three or four sittings, you'll miss it. But, you know, John, how much time we all spend decorating and making food and wrapping and buying presents and so forth. Do we spend anywhere the amount of time in preparation and in celebration of Christmas? Yeah, we go to a Christmas Eve service or a couple of concerts maybe, but I think this 43-day program is really a blessing, and it has been to us and to many people who have told us. I believe it will enrich anyone's Christmas far more than you can even expect, because it's so many powerful thoughts, so many powerful words about the incarnation of Christ. So you're thinking maybe this is a devotional you want to pursue for this year. There's an interesting uh, added value that uh, David and Barbara would like to throw in. David, tell us about it. Well, on our website that uh, is hosannahymnals.com, hosannahymnals, one word.com, we offer recordings of all of the hymns in two versions, one with some voices singing them, and then if you go to the next cut, it's just a piano only, so you can sing along. And if you play piano, there's an accompaniment written out for you. Now, these are only available on our website, and uh, then we also offer special deals if you buy multiple copies, say one for each member of your family or your small group. Okay, so we'll link to your website when you visit ours, thelandandthebook.org. And again, that added value is your experience as you uh, pursue this book, Hosanna and Excelsis from Moody Publishers. Well, Charlie Dyer's coming up with a great set of fresh Bible questions and some answers as well, and I hope you stick with us here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. One of the things I love about reading a Kindle book is my ability to press and hold a word and understand what the definition of that word really is. There's nothing better than getting an answer to your question. And when it's a Bible question, well, how much better? That's what this segment, by the way, is all about here on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who welcomes your questions about the Bible, about prophecy, about the Middle East. And they're welcome anytime with a quick email to The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie, Israel has been on all our minds these past months, many of us struggling with questions of what to think and feel. And in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He's faithful to his chosen people. And that's why as this year's drawing to a close, John, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book listeners. Now, this 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help you prepare to share with your friends the peace of Messiah that they so desperately need. If you would like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Let's get to our listener questions. Is the modern state of Israel a direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy or just evidence of God's sovereign providence? 
Yeah. Simple question, but I've got to start with a preface. People need to listen very carefully to my answer here, or we could end up with a bunch of angry, confused people writing even more uh, emails to us. Uh, The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Now, that's been true since the time Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4. So I can't say that Israel being back in the land right now is the fulfillment, and I put that in quotation marks, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, let me quickly add that I do believe their presence in the land today is part of God setting the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, here's what I mean. We know that Israel has to be back in the land before a seven-year covenant can be made with them. That's Daniel 9.27, and that begins the final seven-year countdown to Christ's return. We know that from Matthew 24, uh, in the middle of that seven-year period, Jesus said the abomination of desolation would be set up in the holy place, a rebuilt temple. And then he says, and those who are in Judea are to flee. Well, that also requires Israel to be back in the land as part of the end times. But until the rapture actually takes place, I can't say with absolute certainty that Israel's presence in the land today is fulfilling Bible prophecy. I feel confident that it is certainly part of God's plan. He's getting everything ready. But I go back to what I know for certain, which is that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the removal of the church from earth. Steve asks, when the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, does the context refer to geopolitical peace or spiritual peace? Yeah, and I don't think it's an either-or answer. You know, in the first part of Psalm 122, where that verse is found, it talks about physical Jerusalem. Then after calling on the people to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the psalmist adds, may there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. Well, that suggests it's more than just spiritual security, you know, walls And citadels are are structures built for protection. And he's asking that shalom, that peace and well-being be inside the city itself, suggesting physical protection. And then he says he's praying for all of this because of, he says, the sake of my family and friends, that is, because of those he loves who live in Jerusalem. And he ends by saying it's also because of the house of the Lord our God, which referred to the temple, the symbol of God's visible presence among his people. So, Putting it all together, the psalmist does end with a spiritual focus, but I can't get away from the fact that he's also asking God to extend his peace and protection over the city and the people who live there. Now, we know ultimate peace for Jerusalem, it's not going to come until the Messiah returns. But I still believe we can ask God to extend his temporary protection and peace to the city and, by extension, to the people and the nation who live there. Bill says, can you please reconcile for me the following passages which seem to be contradictory? In John 14, 28, Jesus says, For the Father is greater than I. But in John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, how can one of them be greater than the other? Yeah, i got to start by recognizing Jesus does make it clear in several passages that he shares equality with the Father. John 10, 30, which you mentioned, is one of them. John 17, 5, where Jesus prays and asks God to glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, would be another. Uh, John 1, 1 would still be another. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now second, I recognize that the incarnation involved Jesus setting aside his right to display his glory as God and humble himself. In fact, he took on the form of a human body. Paul described that in, in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in John 14, 28, Jesus isn't saying that in his essential nature as God, he's somehow less than God the Father. Rather, he's describing the submissive role he assumed during his incarnation. Now, he'd also talked about that earlier in John 6. He said, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So during his time on earth, Jesus did humble himself and submitted himself to the Father to accomplish the grand program of human redemption. But he shared equality with God the Father prior to his incarnation, and he was restored to that position following his resurrection. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. On this segment, we open up our Bibles, open up our email, put the two together, and that's what you're listening to with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Gabriel says, once we're in heaven, will we be able to see Adam and Eve there? Well, yes, I do believe Adam and Eve are going to be in heaven. And here's why I say that. After they sinned, you know, they realized they were naked. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, Genesis 3 says. And I see in this that they experienced a realization of not only their sin, but their feeble attempt to provide some sort of covering. But then later in the chapter, it says God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's verse 21 of Genesis 3. And what I think that shows is God demonstrated to them that something had to die to provide that covering for sin. And God himself was the one who provided it for them. And I don't believe it's an accident that then when I get to chapter 4, Cain's offering to God a fruit from the ground wasn't acceptable, but Abel's offering of the firstborn of the flock was received with favor by God. They had been taught the importance of finding acceptance through sacrifice, and as a result, they became redeemed, and I believe we'll see them in heaven. Genesis 1 through 3 talk about geographical places recognizable today, including both countries and rivers. How should we interpret these since the flood may have impacted their locations and even their shape? Since after the flood, only Noah's family survived, how would Moses know all the details that he references? Yeah, and I think we have to start by saying some locations we don't know for certain. Uh, for example, it mentions the Gihon there uh, in Genesis 2, but that's not the same as the Gihon Spring that we know around Jerusalem. Uh, this one says the Gihon River wound through the entire land of Cush, which is south of Egypt. But now here's what I think happens. I think Moses does provide geographical references or geographical locations from his own day, which he's suggesting uh, these places correspond to places that were known in his time. Uh, so in answer to the second part of the question, how would Moses know the details? Well, I, I see two possibilities. First, it's possible the information was passed down through generations from the time of Adam and through the descendants of Noah. A uh, second possibility is that God himself revealed the details of the early chapters of Genesis directly to Moses by divine revelation. But specific locations like Havilah, Cush, Asher, and the Tigris and Euphrates rivers— well, they were in existence in Moses' day, which is why I believe he uses them to help his readers understand the general location for those events. All right, here's a rather unusual question. This listener wants to know, what would be the spelling of hydrogen in ancient Hebrew? Yeah, it's a good question, but interesting answer. Uh, the ancient Hebrew didn't have a word for hydrogen since they didn't possess the means to discover this colorless gas. In fact, hydrogen wasn't discovered until the 18th century. Uh, modern Hebrew has a word for hydrogen. It was probably coined by Eliezer ben Yehuda, the man who revived ancient Hebrew as a modern language you know, back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, the modern word is maimon, which is derived from the Hebrew word for water, which in our modern understanding makes sense since water is made up of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. 
but it's a modern word and not an ancient one. Gabriel is interested in the Palestinian claims on their rights to the land. The last thing I remember, he says, is someone saying that before God promised the land to Abraham, Palestinians had already settled on that land. Is that true? Well, Genesis 12 and 15 make it clear that God gave the land to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. When Abraham came into the land, it was the Canaanites who lived there, and they're not the forefathers of the Palestinians. The Palestinians are the remnants of those who came through the land at a much later time. Muhammad and his followers didn't come through until 2,500 years after the time of Abraham. Now, I know some Palestinians try to connect themselves to the Philistines, but the Philistines were originally from the area of Greece. Amos 9.7 and Jeremiah 47.4 clearly state the Philistines came from beyond Kaftor, which is the biblical name for Crete. So who lived in the land when Abraham came? It was the Canaanites, and we don't have their remnant today. And that's a look at questions that have come into us recently here at The Land and the Book. Yours welcome, of course, when you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. It's a good thing to get lost in the wonder of the biblical account of of Christmas, right? But when we divorce it from the Old Testament prophecies that precede it, we have a very incomplete story, an incomplete Bible. Imagine prophecies about Jesus' birth 700 years before it actually happened. Charlie, that's a long, long time in advance. It really is, and they're amazing prophecies. We're looking forward to hearing not one, not two, but three prophecies of Christmas in Charlie's devotional. That happens after this Holy Land experience testimony. Check this out. My name is Kelly Worrell, and in June of 2008, my husband and I had the privilege of leading one of the buses on the Moody Israel trip. And I suppose I would describe the trip as being a wonderful combination of both what I guess we would call the spiritual highs, those moments when God's presence was particularly tangible, and those were the moments where we were having a worship service on the Sea of Galilee, or I got to watch my husband baptize several members of our bus in the Jordan River, or we were having a communion service in the garden tomb, and those moments just will never leave you. Um, But there was also this sense in which the trip was very grounding, sort of brought your faith down to earth in a way that it had not been before. And you can kind of appreciate, I guess, the geographic and historic significance of God's Word. When something is prophesied 700 years before the event actually happens, I think we better sit up and take notice of whatever that thing might be. Charlie, I'll let you add it for today's devotional. Ah, Thanks, John. And our journey today actually finds us in Nazareth at the home of a bus driver I've worked with for the past 30 years. He's more than just a skilled, kind, and friendly driver. Munir is a dear friend and a brother in Christ. But we stopped by his house to look out over the city of Nazareth from his living room window near the top of the Nazareth Ridge. It's a unique place to see the bowl-like depression where the original village of Nazareth sat and to realize how much the town has expanded, now covering the hills on all sides. This is a great spot to begin our study of three Old Testament prophecies of Christmas. The first prophecy is found in Isaiah 9, where God points to the justice and righteousness he will bring to Israel and to the whole earth. 
He connects it directly to the birth of a very special son. For to us, a son is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah shares three characteristics of this child who's to be born. He will be a sovereign ruler. The government will rest on his shoulders. He'll reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom. Then Isaiah announces that he'll be a divine ruler. His titles include Wonderful Counselor, which Isaiah later uses in chapter 28 to describe the Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. The next title used by Isaiah to describe the child is Mighty God. No explanations needed there. And the third title is Eternal Father. Now, this isn't intended to confuse the second person of the Trinity with the first person of the Trinity. Rather, it's used to describe this child's relationship to time. He was in existence before time began and rules over time itself. And finally, this child is the ultimate prince of peace. He'll be responsible for bringing the time of peace God has promised to the world, that time when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah says this coming child will be a sovereign ruler and a divine ruler, sharing God's very characteristics, including his possession of all knowledge and wisdom and power, his control over time itself, and his ability to bring God's peace, his shalom to the world. But then Isaiah says this coming child will also be an eternal ruler. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. But why are we here looking over Nazareth as we focus on Isaiah's prophecy of this coming child? Isaiah gave us a hint in the first verse of chapter 9 when he singled out the region of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee. Nazareth is in the area assigned to the tribe of Zebulun, and Naphtali controlled the area on the west side of the Sea of Galilee where this child would later minister. But the second hint that brings us to Nazareth is actually in our second Christmas prophecy. It's found just a few chapters later in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This child to be born is from the line of Jesse through his son, David. The Davidic line of kings, pictured as a tree springing up from Jesse's roots, was cut off by Babylon. But looking forward, Isaiah announced a shoot or branch would grow up out of the roots. And the word used to describe the branch that would spring up is the Hebrew word netzer. The name Nazareth comes from that same word. Jesus grew up in shoot town, a play on words that Matthew himself uses in Matthew 2.23 to explain why Joseph took Mary and Jesus back to Nazareth. But returning to the Old Testament for our final Old Testament prophecy, we need to travel from Nazareth south to the second village associated with the birth and childhood of Jesus. That small town is Bethlehem, the original hometown of Jesse and David. And our third prophetic snapshot comes from the book of Micah. Micah the prophet lived at the same time as Isaiah, and he too saw in the birth of the coming child the fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham and his descendants. In Micah 5.2, the prophet announced the birthplace of this child whose origins extend back into eternity. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient time. It's no accident that the chief priests and teachers of the law at the time of Jesus' birth understood Micah 5.2 as a direct prophecy pointing to the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. The similarities between Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 are dramatic. A child will be born who's destined to rule over Israel. But even though he's born in a specific town at a specific time, yet his origins are from of old, from ancient times. That is, he existed prior to his human birth. But how's that possible? Micah doesn't supply us with an answer, but perhaps that's because Isaiah has already done so. It's possible because this human child to be born is also mighty God and the eternal one who is the father of time itself. Micah concludes his book by connecting the restoration of Israel, both physically and spiritually, with the promises God originally made to Abraham. Who's God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. A promised king and savior, one who was both God and man, were required to pull together all these prophecies. And that's why in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel told Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Just like Isaiah and Micah predicted. The very night Jesus was born, an angel appeared to a group of shepherds to proclaim, Do not be afraid. I give you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, just like Isaiah and Micah predicted. Isaiah and Micah announced 700 years in advance these prophecies of Christmas, explaining how God's original promises to Abraham and his descendants would come to pass through the birth of a child, someone who existed from eternity past and who was both God and man and who would someday rule over Israel and the world to bring God's promised peace. Charles Wesley got it right when he penned the words to his Christmas anthem, Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wow, three prophecies of Christmas. Charlie, that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe this is a devotional you'd like to hear again. As always, we extend an invitation to you to visit our website where you can hear every program at thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone. I want to thank you for listening to The Land and the Book. On behalf of our host, Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.